All right, Jesse, last week was infuriating, but also really inspiring hearing from Ruth. What's the story this time around? The search for a vibrant artist and mother of two leads authorities all the way to Mexico from Nashville, Tennessee, and is fraught with dark secrets, deadly intentions, greed, and even an additional murder-for-hire plot. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about runs from the law, plots with your pa, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we had a very fun watch party last night. So thank you to everyone who joined. And also thank you to everyone who joined this week. We are thrilled as always to welcome and shout out a new set of incredible patrons. Christy F. and Lori M. Ashley C. and Ricky M. Welcome. Well, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I know. We are going to be together when this happens. Yes. By the time this one comes out, we'll be reunited in the Adirondacks with both of our families, a pile of kids, lots of lots wine. Of wine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And pumpkin pie all around. So we hope that you are nice and cozy with your family. And as I recall from my like 20s, remember Wednesday was like the party night to go out before Thanksgiving? Yes. Yeah, it really was. When I worked at the bar, it was always one of the busiest nights of the whole year. So I hope y'all are having fun for the next couple of days, staying warm and staying cozy. We'll probably post a little something on our Instagram to say hi. But without further ado, let's get into today's decidedly less cozy true crime story. Let's. On Friday morning, August 16th, 1996, Marissa Moody approached the 5,300-square-foot March Mansion on Blackberry Road in Nashville, Tennessee, with something less than dread, but definitely not enthusiasm. Though her son had made fast friends with five-year-old Sammy March, Marissa had never warmed up to his parents, attorney Perry and children's book illustrator Janet. Perhaps it was... More the other way around, even, Janet and Perry had always seemed aloof, if not outright rude to the single mother. Though she was uncomfortable around the marches, she refused to allow it to come in the way of the relationship between her son and Sammy, who got along splendidly. Marissa stepped into the luxury home, finding it gleaming as though recently cleaned, and it had been by the marches housekeeper, Deneen Beard, that very morning. The only thing that felt out of place was a large, dark rug. It was rolled up, lying near Perry's study and the entrance of the children's playroom. How large? It was large enough to hold a human body. Is That's where you're going for. That was my main question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it appeared to be an oriental rug, which seemed at odds with Janet's minimalistic sensibilities. Most of the house featured perfectly polished and bare wood floors. 
While Marissa noted the out-of-place rug, Sammy's nanny appeared and told her that Janet would not be able to join the play date because she wasn't at home. Marissa was slightly perplexed as Janet had set up the play date only the afternoon before and had made no mention of the fact that she didn't plan on being there. She waited to greet Perry, who was in his study, but the attorney never emerged. Instead, he sent his kindergarten-age son out to tell her that she could feel free to leave the children with a nanny and that she would come and pick up her son later. Typical, she thought. Won't even spare a minute for a polite greeting. When she returned later, Perry failed to materialize once more. And she also noticed something else was missing. The rolled-up rug was gone. Marissa made a mental note. She wasn't sure why at the time, but her gut told her that it was a detail she should not forget. Yikes. So where was Janet? And why was Perry preoccupied that hot summer day? Later on, he would drive to his in-laws, Larry and Carolyn Levine's, and explained that their daughter had left on a spontaneous trip after the couple had gotten into a tiff the night before. The Levines already had some reason to be skeptical of their son-in-law, but now they were very concerned. Janet's life revolved around her family. Maybe she would have left Perry, but had she done so, she would have certainly taken her children. Yeah. Who are very young at this point. They're five and two, I think, just about. Yeah. Again and again, the Levines kept asking, well, where is she? Why hasn't she called us? Why hasn't she called her brother? And then did she really leave on her own accord? Those questions and more will be answered on today's episode of Love Murder. So let's go back to happier times, starting with a courtship of two college-age kids just fallen in love. Harry and Janet met as students at the University of Michigan when they were introduced by Janet's roommate. And I think Perry was two years ahead of Janet in school. So Janet was a freshman, I believe. And so this roommate had a feeling that the two would hit it off. And gosh darn it, she was correct. They totally hit it off, even though Janet overslept and actually missed their very first date. They were supposed to go to a Rosh Hashanah event together during the day, and apparently Janet slept through it and missed the date. However, she rebounded well, and it seemed like Perry was just completely into her, and they were inseparable almost immediately. Janet Levine was beautiful, artistic, quirky, and she had an incredible sense of humor. She came from a warm and loving family that was well off, and she had one brother whom she was very close to. Her father, Larry, was a well-respected attorney who had been born in New York and then set up his practice in Nashville, Tennessee. Carolyn Levine was a doting and politically connected mother who loved her children fiercely. Perry was drawn to Janet for her talent, looks, and personality, but also because her loving family offered much that he hadn't had growing up, namely financial stability and maternal love. Perry's father was a former lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army who had served in Japan. In 1956, Perry's father, Arthur, changed their last name from Markovich to March. He would later deny that it was to Americanize or distance himself from his Jewish background, but instead so people would stop misspelling it. Yeah, so many people did that. Yeah, absolutely. Art never truly left the service. After returning to his home city of East Chicago, he joined the reserves and worked as a pharmacist at a, it was kind of like a pharmacy his father had opened. It was around this time that he made a trip that would change his life. He met the beautiful daughter of a bus driver with Eastern European roots 
in Israel, and her name was Zipporah. The couple fell in love at first sight. Later on, Perry would describe his immediate attraction to Janet as being similar to when his parents first met. Arthur and Zipporah married. They moved to East Chicago, where they settled and had three children, Perry first and then his two siblings. The family never had a lot of money, but it was enough to make out a very good living. They had a, like a tiny little like lakeside vacation home in Michigan and times were mostly pretty good. Perry had a generally happy early childhood until 1970 when he turned nine and his mother passed away suddenly and tragically. Oh. According to Arthur, Zipporah had been prescribed Darvon, which was a very common painkiller at the time. This was following a head injury. And he said that Zipporah had experienced anaphylactic shock due to a Darvon allergy that they hadn't realized. <gasps> Whoa. Well, that's Arthur's story. However, that is not what her death certificate says. What did her death certificate say? In reality, Zipporah had died of an overdose of barbiturates and the authorities believed it had been a suicide. So it wasn't anaphylactic? No. It seems likely that Arthur was trying to spare his family the stigma of suicide. Oh. Which is heartbreaking. But I can understand that one a little bit. But that wasn't the only thing that Arthur March bent the truth about. He often told people that he had been a colonel in the army when the highest rank he had ever achieved was actually lieutenant colonel, which is like a rung below. He's like, but it says colonel in the name. Yeah, it's close enough, right? Just take the lieutenant off. He also told people that he was a Green Beret on secret missions in Israel and other places, which they believe was not true. All of this was made up. My main source today is Love, Lies, and Murder by Gary C. King. So I think I've had this book for a while because it's basically the name of our show. Yeah. Love, Lies, and Murder. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Love, Lies, and Lieutenants. Love, Lies, and Lieutenants. <laughs> oh, that would be a good one for military murder. Uh-huh. So even though he had this penchant for creative storytelling, let's say, Arthur was an extremely devoted father. It seemed like after Zipporah passed away, Arthur really channeled everything into raising his kids. And at least based on external metrics of success, it seemed like he had done a good job because both of his sons became lawyers while his daughter built a thriving dental practice. Yeah, that's strong. Exactly. It's funny. I'm just now like starting to be like, wow, we did a great job because his kids all grew up to be successful. And it's like, well, there's other metrics to success. So external like capitalism validation successful. Yes, yes they all went to school. They got good jobs. <laughs> Janet's father, Larry, had a lot to do with Perry following in his footsteps in the law as well. After living in Chicago for a couple of years after Janet's graduation from U of M, Janet and Perry decided to relocate to Nashville where the Levines lived. Perry applied to and was accepted by Vanderbilt University Law School, which was at the time one of the top 20 law schools in the United States. Despite the fact that Janet and Perry were not yet married, Larry and Carolyn offered to pay 100% of Perry's tuition while he was at law school, which is, of course, a tremendously generous offer that Perry happily accepted. Yeah. It was clear, ring or no ring, that Perry was a part of the family. And when 1987 rolled around with no proposal, Janet took matters into her own hands and she proposed to Perry herself. I guess they were walking in this park that is near where they would eventually build their dream home. Aww. And she was like, let's just do it. And Perry accepted and the couple was married much to everyone's delight. Many regarded Janet as Perry's 
golden goose, for lack of a better word. Not only was she a lovely and talented woman, her family's wealth provided Perry with material possessions and opportunities that he would not have otherwise had access to. Indeed, the Levines were extraordinarily generous with Perry and that extended to helping out his extended family as well. When Arthur's house in Chicago was getting foreclosed upon, the Levines actually bought the house so Arthur could stay in it and only charged him an extremely low rent. However, when Arthur had trouble making even those payments, he decided to move first to Nashville to be closer to Perry and Janet, where he lived, I think, for a couple of years. And then eventually he was able to retire to Ahajik. It is spelled A-J-I-J-I-C. It's a small town in Mexico, about 30 miles outside of Guadalajara. Ahihak? Ahihik? So I looked it up. I Googled it, how to pronounce Ahihik, and it's like Americans saying it. <laughs> oh, no way. In the video. So I'm like, okay, first of all, I don't, I don't trust y'all. And second, even if they are Americans who know what they're saying, I'm copying them, copying yes. somebody else who knows how to say it. So... It's been like the telephone of how to pronounce this poor town. So my apologies if you actually live or familiar or you're Mexican or anything, have anything to do with Ahik, because we're going to go with that pronunciation. (laughs) (laughs) So the Levines were definitely surrogate parents for Perry, especially Carolyn, whose warmth helped fill the void left in Perry's heart after his mother died when he was only a child. They also helped the young couple out by helping them buy their first house. Larry offered Perry all of his connections in the legal world. And Perry did very well. He ended up graduating from law school with top marks. He was on the law review. And he did get some offers from prestigious New York City-based firms. But he turned those down in order to stay in Nashville, where Janet was close to her family. And he was really connected to that world through his father-in-law. In 1988, Perry became the first Jewish attorney ever hired at a prominent Nashville law firm named Bass, Barry, and Sims. Wow. I guess it was the same year. Also, 1988 is not that long ago. No. In the same year, they hired their first Jewish attorney and their first black attorney. Come on. I know. I mean, like major props to those humans, but like that is just blows my mind. Yep. So, but he was doing great. And by all accounts, everyone said that he was a very good attorney and that he was on a partner track. Unfortunately, only three years later, he was asked to leave the firm under murky circumstances. Murky? Murky. We will most certainly be getting into that later, but it seemed likely that the Levines did not know what happened. So he told Larry that he wanted to work at his firm which was smaller than Bass, Barry, and Sims. And he told anyone else that was interested in why he had made this move from this really big, prestigious firm to a smaller firm, that a smaller firm would allow him to pursue his own legal interests and take on more projects. And Larry told everyone that he was happy to welcome his son-in-law into the business. During this transition, the couple's first child, Samson, a.k.a. Sammy, was born. I think he was probably months old at this point when he left the firm and went to the new place. So it was around that same area that he was an infant. And little girl Zipporah, who they called Zippy, who was named for her late grandmother, joined the family in 1994. Isn't that a great name, Zipporah? It's beautiful. Yeah, I've heard that before. So around the time that Zippy was born, the family began to build the 5,300-square-foot dream home on Blackberry Lane. Oh, my God. 
giant and gorgeous in a wonderful neighborhood, rolling hills. Blackberry Lane. like Blackberry Lane. It was truly a dream house. And Janet was extremely artistic. She, at that point, had already built a successful and very fulfilling career as a children's book illustrator. But because she is so aesthetically inclined and so artistic. She actually did all of the design work and helped build the house kind of with at least doing the design and interior design and helping plan anything and worked very closely with the architects. So the house was just gorgeous. On the outside, Perry and Janet looked like they were living the perfect life. Successful in their respective fields. They had a stunning custom-built home and beautiful, healthy children. But as often things are, behind closed doors, all was not well. Friends of Janet's claim that she was possibly depressed prior to her disappearance. Her parents knew that Perry had somehow lost or mismanaged much of the couple's funds, and Janet had told them that she no longer trusted him to handle their finances. Yeah. As a result, the Levines had insisted that the new house be in Janet's name because they were helping them build this new house as well. Furthermore, Perry was never home, often whining and dining clients late into the evening while Janet took on the burden of managing the home and caring for two very small children, all while holding down a busy career and building this house on her own as well. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, you know how that is because Dan travels so frequently. I know that you're coming off a three-week stretch of being alone and managing everything. Two and a half, but feels like 18. Yeah. (laughs) It can lead to a lot of resentment, whether it's warranted or not, because there are circumstances in which you just have to, like there's like obviously deployments and a lot of spouses at home for months and months. And there's, you, you feel frustrated, but there's nothing you can do. No. And I think like also this makes sense why the house would be in her name. If she's the one that's there all the time and her parents are helping fund it, it just that makes sense to me. She's doing the work with the architect. She's there all the time to sign off on everything. Like that doesn't seem odd just because she's the woman of the household. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. And I also think that too, the resentment wasn't just that he was like working all the time. It's that he was out drinking, eating, enjoying putting things on expense accounts. Well, she is the one doing dinner and bath and bedtime. And that's really frustrating. And also apparently bringing in the money from her parents. Yeah, exactly. So what are we doing here? Yeah, what are you doing here? Where is all of our money, Perry? Where is it going? So all of these issues seem to come to a head on Thursday, August 15th, 1996, when Perry and Janet got into an argument. Perry claimed that around 8.30 p.m. or so that Janet packed her bags for a trip and took somewhere between four to $5,000 in cash, her passport, and a plastic baggie of marijuana. And then she got in her Volvo and drove away. Perry later told his in-laws that he had asked Janet where she was going while she was leaving, and she told him it was none of his business. He later produced a list that had been typed up on the computer. And basically this list implied that she was going away on a 12-day vacation. And that for those 12 days, Perry was to finish all of these 23 tasks that was on this list and manage the household because she had been doing it so long on her own. So she typed out this list and 
printed it out and then he signed it saying essentially it was like a contract that he would finish all of these things before she returned in 12 days. Strange. It was very strange. It's always strange too when somebody says a note is from somebody, but it's not in their handwriting. It's typed up on the computer and printed out. I mean, less strange now that we all have phones and we're just texting each other. Yeah, but like also, can you imagine? Yeah, you're in a rage and you're like, let me just pop on the computer and type up a quick to-do list for you. The computer file indicated that had been created at 8.17 p.m. on the night Janet disappeared. After Janet allegedly stormed out, Perry made several calls to his siblings, his father in Mexico, Janet's friends, and then her parents around midnight to let them know that Janet had left and he didn't know where she was going, which is also a little curious because if your spouse is just leaving on a trip, would you really feel the need to call everybody telling them that, including your in-laws at midnight? Yeah, no, he didn't do well with this. No. He gets an F in all of this. Mary said at this point the next day, he considered calling the police, but the Levines did not want to be embarrassed if it was just she was going on a vacation and she just wanted to be out of touch. But the Levines refute that very strongly, saying it was the opposite. After they were like, well, she's not answering our calls. We don't know where she is. We'd like to go to the police. And he was like, no, 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 no. Like, this will be so embarrassing if she just pops up. Let's try to handle this on our own. The next morning, when Marissa showed up for the play date, Perry seemingly had no idea that it was happening. And Janet had set it up the previous afternoon. She had called Marissa to set up this play date. Now, this seems curious to me that she would write a list of 23 items to do and things to remember, like presents to buy for a child's birthday party, but she would fail to write down, oh, by the way, you're having a play date tomorrow morning. Yeah. Yeah, that was strange. And prior to Marissa coming in, the cleaner, Deneen, had come through the house and she was interviewed by the police later on and said that that morning the house was especially clean as if somebody had cleaned it before she got there and the trash had already been taken out, which was unusual. It didn't look already clean when she showed up to clean usually. Yeah, she shouldn't come to my house then because that's always pre-clean. <laughs> I mean, you're a good person. I, I do like a half-ass job. It's a, it's a half, half-ass job. She did not report seeing a rolled-up carpet, but this may have been because Perry had instructed her not to clean the children's playroom and the door was shut. Later on, Marissa would report that the rug had been located in the doorway of the playroom. Got it. Yeah. So don't go in the room that the weird, large, suspicious rug is in. Yes, avoid that one. You don't need to dust that one up. The Levines called their son, Mark, hoping that she had gone to visit him in L.A., but unfortunately, Janet was not there. I guess she had made some mention of like, I'm going to try to like go out and visit Mark at some point. And so they thought maybe she just decided to do it, but she was not there, unfortunately. Larry and Perry drove to the airport to search for Janet's car, and the Levines called all of Janet's friends as well as area hotels to see if she had booked a room anywhere. Perry left the children with the Levines for most of the rest of the weekend and on Sunday, August 18th, called his father, Arthur, to let him know that he believed Janet had left him. Arthur reportedly agreed to drive to Tennessee from Mexico so he could help out with the kids and mostly help his son through this difficult time. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Andy, I think we've all experienced some challenging times. 
I remember how confusing and complicated it was to figure out what I wanted to do with my career after we moved back to the East Coast. One of the most unfortunate things about life is that it does not come with a user manual. Absolutely. And navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's career change, a new relationship, becoming a parent. 100%. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills, which makes therapy the closest thing we have to our tour guide to help us figure out this ride of life. That's why we're so excited to be sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp has connected over 3 million people with licensed therapists. It's convenient and accessible anywhere, 100% online. I think one of the biggest misperceptions around therapy is that it's only for people who are dealing with some big, huge issue. Yep, because in reality, therapy can be such a positive part of so many different types of people's lives. Whether it's dealing with anxiety or depression, working on some sort of emotional healing, or just having someone to offload normal, everyday stress with. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash lovemurder. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash lovemurder. Got a killer business idea? Make it a reality with Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling hand-knitted holiday scarves or vintage finds from around the world, Start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can too. Jesse, you know I am a passionate Shopify user. I still remember when I got the store up and running and actually started to see sales. That feeling is so exciting and empowering, and it's something I'd love for other people to have the chance to experience as well. Additionally, I feel like for most small businesses, third-party logistics and just figuring out how to ship and how to manage inventory is so difficult, and Shopify solves all of that for you. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash lovemurder. The Levines became increasingly concerned when they did not hear from their daughter. Perry had told everyone that Janet said she'd be only away for 12 days because she wanted to arrive back in time for Sammy's birthday on the 27th. But invitations had already gone out for his birthday party. Oh, my God. Which was actually being held on Sunday, August 25th. Seeing as she had planned 
the entire party, sent out the invitations, she would certainly have known that his party was happening on that Sunday and not Tuesday. So why would she say, I'm going to come back on Tuesday? Yeah, no. It doesn't make any sense. There's no, like, female rationality in any of this. <laughs> no, there, there's no way a mother would miss her child's birthday party. <laughs> it's just laced with complete lack of awareness of anything. That a mother, a mom, would take a baggie of pot, four grand, and be like, bye, you take care of the kids for 12 days, see ya, gonna miss my son's birthday party. Yeah, but also like very detail-orientedly in advance sent out the invitations for said party. Yeah. No. It does not make sense. And that's what the Levines were saying. They were saying, this is not like our daughter. Yes. This does not make sense. Her kids are her life. She would not just bail on them this way. And so when two weeks had passed, they finally said, Perry, enough is enough. And they went to the police by themselves. So her parents go to the police to report her missing. And the police took it very seriously. I think it helped that they were a prominent family and that he was an attorney. But also she'd been gone for two weeks. This wasn't just she left last night. And they were like, they can't say wait on that. She's been gone for two weeks. Yeah, but that's like a little too long. It's way too long. I definitely don't think I would have waited as long, obviously. I can't say why they were, other than Perry was convincing them not to go. So the police immediately looked up all of Janet's credit cards and bank accounts, and there was zero action on them, which is an incredibly bad sign, even given that maybe she took some cash with her. When you're on a two-week-long trip, you're going to use your credit card somewhere. It's going to happen. Yes. So immediately they are suspecting that something happened, that she is not able and she is not of her free will for whatever reason out there in the world. The Levines made it very clear to the police that they suspected their son-in-law of foul play. Carolyn told the police that Janet had been unhappy in their marriage and considering divorce. A divorce that Perry did not want because it would cut off the benefits in his life that were furnished by the Levines. It didn't take much asking around to determine that Perry had not told the police the whole truth about the state of his marriage. There were multiple sightings of Perry out and about going around town with women who were not his wife on what looked like unmistakable dates. They also discovered that Perry had been staying in hotels during the week leading up to Janet's disappearance and not the family home. Furthermore, their housekeeper, Deneen, said that Janet had a book about divorce on her nightstand. What? Yeah. So he's saying, there's no way we weren't going to get divorced. We were doing just fine. And everyone's like, ah, except for your infidelity. And the fact that you were staying in a hotel up until she left conveniently. And then the housekeeper's like, I don't know where that book got to, but she had a, a book about divorce on her bedside. So... Oh. Yeah, you are lying, sir. So Perry continued to deny that they were heading to divorce, but he did admit that they had been fighting in the days leading up to Janet's disappearance, hence the hotel stays. He said that they didn't want the kids to know, but they were getting really frustrated with one another. So after they put the kids to bed, he would go stay at a hotel and then he would return in the morning before they woke up. Okay. That's what he claimed. While the police continued to dig around for information on Perry and the state of the March's marriage, they were also able to locate Janet's missing Volvo. On September 7th, Janet's car was found in the parking lot of a large apartment complex. It was clear by the accumulation of weather-induced dirt and cobwebs that the car had been in the very same spot since the night Perry claimed that Janet had left. Which at this point is how long? 
So this is September 7th, and she went missing the night of August 15th. So we're working on three weeks. Inside the car, there was a suitcase and Janet's purse, which did include her passport. But it wasn't so much what was in the car that was interesting or her suitcase. It's what wasn't. Janet had not brought her toothbrush, her hairbrush, some toiletries. She had not even brought a bra. She's supposedly going away for 12 days and she did not even bring an extra bra other than the one she was supposedly wearing. But she's got her baggie of weed and four grand, so. Yeah, which of course Come was on. not found in the car. I'm, no. I'm skeptical about that four grand ever being a part of this real conversation. Yeah. So the detectives were suspicious of Perry, but really frustrated, like you pointed out, that no one had reported Janet missing for two weeks because in that time, the March's house had been professionally cleaned several times. Yeah. And two weeks is a lot of time to get rid of evidence. Yes, it is. Yeah, they're just kind of starting behind the ball here. And there's other stuff too, like if he had disposed of her body in a dumpster, had they found out earlier, there's a chance they could have found it. But after two weeks, the dumpsters all were in a landfill, which was gigantic. So there was just a lot of time-sensitive stuff that they missed out on in this case. Soon, though, disturbing details of Perry's past began to surface. Dirty secrets that betrayed his family man persona. First, a woman who knew Perry when they were both undergraduates at the University of Michigan came forward. Basically, she saw these reports about Janet because it was big news that this woman was missing. She's a beautiful, attractive woman, mother of two small children, and she is the daughter of a prominent Nashville family. So locally and even nationally, this was getting a lot of attention. So when this woman who knew Perry when they were both undergraduates saw that, she came forward and she spoke to a journalist and said that the public had a right to know, and so did law enforcement, that Perry had a history of violence. And he had been interested in her, it sounds like, when they were college students. And she was not interested in him, but he got jealous of something that she was doing and he punched her in the face. Oh my God. And so she ended up not ever reporting it. There was a lot of like shame and fear involved in the situation, but she wanted to come forward when Janet went missing for obvious reasons. Very brave of her though. Very brave. And she ended up speaking to the Nashville scene and a reporter specifically named Willie Stern. And Perry was asked for a question about this article and this claim. And he also spoke to Willie Stern and he went on record saying the following. Guys, this was published in Nashville scene. This man said these words, which blow my mind. And I want to excuse my language right from the get because these are Perry's words. <gasps> this is what he told reporter Willie Stern about the situation. He was a slut, Perry told the scene. He denied that the incident had occurred. I fucked her for a few months. Then she came back from vacation, told me she had the crabs, and I dumped her. The crabs? The crabs. The crabs. Did they follow her home from vacation? Apparently, she caught him on vacation at the beach with the crabs. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even think that was funny until you said it that way, and then it occurred to me. <laughs> he went on to say, if anybody else has been subjected to the kind of scrutiny I've received, you'd find people to say unpleasant things about them as well. Mm-hmm. The woman told Willie Stern that she and Perry had never had sex. 
And she had not reported the incident to the police or campus security. She apparently had felt that it was important to come forward when news about Janet's mysterious disappearance began hitting the newspapers. Yep. So I am going to go ahead and believe her in general. I would believe her in this situation. But let's just say that that was not the last time that there was evidence that Perry was a really gross guy when it came to women. While looking into Perry's past, missing person detective Dave Miller decided to look into Perry's swift fall from grace at his first law firm, Bass, Barry and Sims. Remember I told you we'd come back to this? The murky. The murky circumstances. The murk. So murk. Turns out that Creepy Perry was writing anonymous, sexually explicit letters to one of the paralegals. <laughs> A woman named Lee. Guys, are you ready for some master gross theater? Oh, I love it when you give content. Guys, this is, it's like embarrassing and sexual and cringe. So cringe. Yeah. It's just so like peak, peak cringe. Okay. So this is an excerpt from Love, Lies, and Murder from his letters. I want to inhale the essence of you. I want to taste your arms. The pure animal sexiness of your body grips me and embarrasses me. I'm also embarrassed. I'm embarrassed for you too, sir. <laughs> I want to make love to you because I'm attracted to you, all of you. The thought of my tongue buried within you excites me more than anything in the world. The letter included the writer's notion of wanting to have hours and hours of oral sex and talked about licking and sucking, kissing and caressing your soft belly and thighs. <laughs> the letter included details of the writer's marriage, including that marriage has a way of making sex boring at times, routine and old. I do not mean that it loses its pleasure. We still climax. We still love passionately. We still love our partner's name to please. I want you to cry because you never knew how good it could be. Oh, my God. Nothing makes a sexually explicit letter more of a turn on than mentioning your wife in it. <laughs> But the main thing here is that this was not reciprocated by the paralegal. No, not even remotely. Completely not at all. And she does not know who this is. So we know this is Perry now. She did not know who this is. And he he left her like these somewhat complex instructions for her to follow if she wants to find out who her anonymous sex writer is. No, thanks. <laughs> Is there a check the no thanks box? Because the only box he wanted to be checking was hers. So he said, this is an indication if you should ever consider or wish to communicate, check out of the library, the tax management estates, gifts and trust portfolio number 134 through the fourth titled annuities located near the Westlaw terminal on the 25th floor in the library. When you check it out, insert a library checkout card signed by you in its place. I will periodically notice if it is gone. If so, I will contact you to let you know how to reach me. Oh, my God. So he's just fishing. He put a lot of thought into this. A lot of thought. He's not out dining and dining. He's trying to figure out what book he's going to put a library card note card detail in. in. To start his super secret creepy affair. So the firm decided to set a trap and they hired an outside security firm to root this guy out. They ended up setting up surveillance footage around the library at the designated location. And then they had Lee follow his weird instructions. 
when Perry saw that the object of his lust had responded by doing the card thing, he wrote another letter. And this one said, I can barely type this. My hands are unsteady and my thoughts are whirling in a maelstrom of emotions. He should have been like a romance novelist instead of a murderer. He definitely missed his calling. Like erotic writing. I feel as if my heart stopped beating. My world is far less gray today than it has ever been in my life. Oh my God. Okay, now he's getting too bad. This is not good enough for romance writing now. I feel like the lucky leprechaun who has seen the rainbow and knows what lies beyond. No one finds a leprechaun sexy, bro. Oh my gosh. I would love to know who is turned on by the Lucky Charms guy. Who is sexually turned That's on? That's their kink. That? That's their kink. Although, you know, I could kind of see that guy from uh, Austin Powers. Remember? One of the assassins was the leprechaun who had the charms. Okay, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Andy just stared blankly at me for a full 60 seconds. I'm glad I don't remember because I would definitely have judged you. <laughs> okay, I'm not saying he's sexy. I'm just saying <laughs> that that's the only leprechaun I can imagine getting it on. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay, I'll make sure. To... Noted and moving on. <laughs> it goes on though. And like the leprechaun, I wonder if I'll ever find it. Say what you will, my dearest. You will forever be my truest longing. This guy is married and the time he has a baby. Yeah, it's gross. Well, yes, you would have to wait that sad little lust-struck leprechaun because the 30-year-old Perry was caught on video at the library and he was also caught because they set up a camera over her desk, leaving the letter on her desk chair. Oh my God. Caught red-handed. The firm offered Perry the option to resign or they said that they were going to fire him anyway. While they were dealing with it, they sent Leanna paid vacation. However, when she returned, she said that Perry was still working there. They were supposed to have made him quit. And he was still there every time she got up to use the bathroom, get a cup of coffee. He was like in her space. And she now knew he was the one who wrote these disgusting letters to her. So she was like, if you're not going to fire him, I quit. So she resigned. And then she went to a lawyer and she filed a sexual harassment suit. Good for her. Which I think it would be mortifying having to face this person that wrote you these creepy letters every day. And goodness knows how he was behaving at that point. So when she actually filed the suit, the law firm said, okay, now you really got to go. So they actually fired him at that point. And then the suit was settled out of court. Perry was personally responsible for paying Lee $25,000 for the harassing letters. It's unclear how much the Levines knew about this. It seems possible that at the most, Larry might have known about it only because he was the one who hired Perry after he was let go and he was very well connected in the legal scene. But it's also entirely possible that he did not know that he believed his son-in-law. Maybe people in the community didn't want to tell him what happened because it was his son-in-law and they didn't want to embarrass him. Yeah. So we don't know if anyone was going to know about this. It would have been Larry and not anyone else. And certainly not Janet. Janet absolutely did not know. However, it seems like in the days before her disappearance, she may have started figuring things out. What she had talked to her mom about was the missing money. Now, if he has to pay this woman $25,000 and he doesn't want to tell her why, it would just seem like money was disappearing. He had paid Lee 
half of what he owed her at this point. And two days before Janet went missing, she got a, a letter in the mail that said he was having a hard time coming up with the other half and just asked her to be patient while he got the rest of the funds for her. So there was definitely fights about the money and she may have figured out, maybe she saw this letter, maybe she figured out that he was paying off this woman, what had happened and other instances of infidelity, which people claim there were, although we don't have any real confirmation of that. Infidelity is one thing, but then like harassing and like writing these creepy letters to someone that's unwanted yeah. is a totally it's so different thing. so much worse. It's yes. so much worse to have that kind of predatory and creepy behavior mm -hmm. from the father of your children. Yeah. It's way worse. Yeah. And I don't know if she would have ever had access to these letters, but I was just thinking how terrible it would feel as the wife to hear the parts about marriage being boring or having him say to another woman, you'll forever be my truest longing. Yeah. Talk about boring. That's the most cliche shit I've ever heard. Yeah. It's just, dude. So in any case, police, when they found this out, started to come up with a theory given the timing of everything and that he was staying in hotels and that what she was saying to her friends and family that she may have figured out what had happened or in the very least she knew that this money was going somewhere and she might have just said I'm fed up I'm done so they theorized that maybe they got into a fight and she said I'm divorcing you I've decided it's over you're already sleeping somewhere else get out of my house because it's in my name and my parents helped us pay for it. And he snapped and then killed her. Now they did search the home and they found no blood evidence. But Perry was also a black belt in karate. Yeah. I was going to say, if he like hits her the wrong way or chokes mm -hmm. her, there's not necessarily going to be blood. Exactly. So that is the working theory. And even though they don't have a lot of evidence at this point, they were pretty darn sure that Perry was a killer. And even if he wasn't a killer, he's clearly a scumbag. Yeah. As the heat grew more intense around Perry, he didn't do himself any favors. He started looking guilty as shit. He started acting like he was covering stuff up and hiding things. First off, the hard drive on his computer, the computer where Janet had allegedly typed the to-do list, disappeared before the search. So sometime between their first visit to the house, and when they came back with a search warrant, the hard drive had magically disappeared. And Perry just said, well, you know, I, I left the door open and the alarm wasn't on, so somebody must have come in and taken it. And they're like, did they take anything else? I'm like, no. So a thief came in and took the only thing that had incriminating evidence on you, but left all of your expensive antiques and TV sets and other things, monitors, et cetera, just the hard drive. He also began denying access to the children. Now we're getting into another. I mean, this is was last week. We had a big grandparent case. And sometimes this just happens to me. I'm drawn to cases that have a similar theme. He began denying access to the children, to Larry and Carolyn. And Larry was like, hell no, absolutely not. You're not going to do this. Not in my house. And they filed an emergency court order that banned Perry from taking the kids out of the state. But it was too late. He had taken the kids out by mid-September. So I think only a few days after they found Janet's Volvo and they searched the house, he took the kids and stashed them with a relative in Chicago. So by the time the court order came through, they were already in Chicago. Oh, my God. 
the Levines did not take this lying down. Larry was a loving father, but he was also a steely and determined litigator who knew his way around the legal system as well, obviously. Over the next few months and then for years after, the Levines fought to ensure their visitation rights and also protect Janet's assets. Janet had a sizable life insurance policy. The new house had been in her name. She had her own assets. She made her own money. So they were like, he's not getting anything. We're not letting him get away with this and take Janet's children and Janet's money and Janet's things. So they worked very, very hard to protect specifically their relationship with their children. And they did a really good job. I mean, this was relentless. They never, ever stopped trying. They were involved in every legal fight that they could do to maneuver and get the kids back into their lives. They did it cutthroat wise. And I think more power to them. This began a frustrating slog towards justice for the Levines and the investigators alike. Everyone, like I said, was convinced that Perry had killed Janet, but there was no body, no blood evidence, no obvious evidence in the Volvo, although they were now, they ended up turning the car over to the FBI to have it forensically examined. But they also didn't have a murder weapon. They didn't have any eyewitnesses at this time. So they're kind of shit out of luck at this point, and they were completely powerless to do anything when Perry moved himself and the children down to Mexico to live near his father. Stop it. So now they are out of the country, out of the United States jurisdiction. The Levines and the detectives were united by their desire to take Perry down, and the escape from the U.S. only fueled their efforts more. They were like, we will dog this guy till the end. Absolutely. Meanwhile, Perry was doing his best to act like Janet had never existed. He very quickly made a life for him in Ahahik. With only, like, I think it was like within three weeks, he romanced a 27-year-old single mother of three named Carmen and moved their families in together within three weeks. Whoa. He bought a palatial home in a gated community, and he also formed a new legal partnership with a Mexican-American he had met in Nashville named S. Samuel Chavez. Now, this guy was also sketchy as hell. In fact, his license to practice law in Indiana had been revoked because of felony convictions for providing false information on a credit application and on a bankruptcy filing. With their scummy forces combined, they ripped off tons of expats and locals alike who went to Chavez in March for help with things like if somebody was down there and they still owned property in the United States, they would say, hey, can you help me sell my property and get it deposited in a Mexican bank? And they would take everything off the top. They would do a short sale and not get the true value of the house. They were doing all of this sketchy stuff. They also had advertised themselves as a way to invest money. And they ripped those people off and just straight up stole from them. When people started coming back after them and filing lawsuits, Perry allegedly, now this is a mysterious fire, but we know who it was. A fire mysteriously broke out that destroyed certain documents and also made them receive a hefty insurance settlement from the damage. Afterwards, the Mexican insurance company cut ties with them completely and refused to insure them anymore because they believed there was fraud, but they couldn't prove it. They began to get sued into oblivion and the business eventually folded in July of 2000. By then, the Levines had managed to file a wrongful death suit and a judge had ruled in 2000 this is four years after her disappearance, that Janet March was dead despite a body not having been found. It's crazy. 
Yes. Basically, if you can prove that they have not been found anywhere, no one has seen them, they haven't used anything, there's been no hits on anything, and also that they had reason to be with their home and child, that there's no reason they would have run. And the partner is running with the kids. Exactly. To another country. (laughs) Yep. And so because of that, they found that she was deceased, but then they also found that Perry was responsible for it based on his refusal to participate in the proceedings whatsoever. He would not come back to the States for anything. He refused to speak to people. He did one deposition and the deposition made him look real bad. I mean, there's like a full on three chapters of this book just dedicated to the deposition because he is caught in lies. He is combative. He's evasive. The things he says don't make sense. It looks like he did it and he's trying to cover it up. So a probate court jury awarded the Levines $113.5 million in damages. Whoa. And ordered Perry to pay the judgment. How do they do that when he's abroad? I have no idea. A lot of these wrongful death suits, too, are a lot of money. And I don't think it's really assumed that those people can pay it back or certainly not the full amount ever. So I don't know how they're going to go about getting it. But it did probably give them the legal rights to freeze any accounts that he was drawing on that were Janet's or her life insurance because they could say we have a judgment against him. So you have to stop that so that we can get that money. So I don't think they're necessarily going to get any of that money, but they're going to stop him from getting her money because he was also like draining her accounts at this point, too. At the same time, the Levines began to put the pieces in motion to ultimately gain full custody of Janet's children, Sammy and Zipporah. So go Larry and Carolyn. Seriously. I think that there was legislation passed in Tennessee, too, that was helping them kind of like the Ruth situation that they were kind of behind the scenes involved with, too, to support grandparent custody laws. Meanwhile, with Janet legally declared dead, Perry went on to marry Carmen and they welcomed a baby. We're now the Brady Bunch, Perry told CBS News. We have three girls and three boys. I have a wonderful life. I have a wonderful house. I have a wonderful community around me. And this is where I want to live. I've probably never seen the children happier in their whole life. Whoa. And CBS News, can you imagine how the Levines must have felt? His smug, fat, ham-fisted face saying that on the news. He does. He has like a a very hammy-looking face. Oh, yeah. Not what I envisioned. I guess he was like kind of cute when he was younger. Like people said that he had been like a good looking younger man. But sure. He literally looks like a cartoon ham with eyes when he gets older. The Levines did manage to secure visitation and they returned the children to the United States with them for a 39 day window. During that window, they did everything in their power to gain full legal custody while the kids were still in the United States. Yeah. But unfortunately, they were not successful and the kids were sent back to Perry in late April of 2001. But Perry had merely won the battle. He would not win the war. By 2005, he was full on broke. He was hated by the local community because he had fleeced so many people. He had no one left to swindle. So Carmen and Perry ended up opening up a little like bistro cafe and they put it in Carmen's name so that she could run it if he got into legal trouble. They also couldn't take it away from her based on the lawsuits against him. And it was at this cafe on August 3rd, 2005, that Perry March was finally arrested and then extradited to the United States to face second-degree murder charges. 
crate. Behind closed doors, the authorities had decided that they had enough to potentially nail him on second-degree murder, but not first. A hair that was DNA matched to Janet had been found in the back of the Volvo. (sighs) Yep. Perry had actually been secretly indicted in 2004, and they had kept it hush-hush because they had to get all of the parts in place to go forward and end up extraditing him. And there was reasons to actually Mexico did participate with this and were happy to deport him because he had done so much screwed up shit in Mexico and against Mexican citizens and so many people he had defrauded that they're like, wow, there's like four different reasons we could just deport you that have nothing to do with the fact that you're getting charged with murder. So this was not a difficult extradition conversation. Yeah, let's get this bad apple out. Exactly. During transport to the United States, Perry told Detective Pat Poslioni, who was one of the cold case detectives that had refused to give up on Janet, he said, okay, I'm ready to close the chapter. And he told the detective that he would plead guilty if they would give him a prison sentence for seven years or less. Does he get to, like, pick? No, no. Detective Poslioni was like, "Uh, not really my jurisdiction, buddy. You take it up with the DA and we'll see. Well, seven years was not going to happen, but it was possible that some deal could have been struck given that Janet's body was never found. So that's a hard case to prosecute. Plus, there's a bargaining chip there because he could reveal what he had done with Janet. Yep. And so while they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with Perry and if there could possibly be a deal on the table. He really helped them out by being a total shithead. (laughs) Okay, so Andy, I know you know the answer to this. What is the age-old trick egomaniacs pull when they're backed against a wall in prison that they think will help them get out of their situation? Trying to kill someone else on the outside. Of course, they hire a hitman. (laughs) Hitman, that's right. They usually make a very poor choice of who they're hiring as well. Yes, and then they flip. Yeah, and then they flip, exactly. This is, I have never, I mean, you guys will probably send me one, but I don't think I've yet heard of, I mean, I guess mafia. The mafia guys could pull it off, but I have not heard of like just a regular citizen guy like actually successfully orchestrating a hit from prison. Even the mafia guys, like, end up flipping on each other. Yeah, exactly. Somebody always gets caught. Always. So, yeah. Over the next several weeks, Perry tried to solicit a fellow inmate named Nate Ferris to kill the Levines. <gasps> yeah, he wants to kill oh, my Larry God, and Carolyn. bold. He is, like, one of those, like, narcissists who feels like he can control everything and then that by them going after him and asking for justice, like he's like acting like a victim, like that uh, they they created this situation. Like, oh, I, I didn't do anything. I don't know why they're going after me. Why are they trying to take my kids? Like he had cast them as the bad guys in his eyes. And I'm not sure if he really did believe like his legal troubles were going to go away or if he just did not want his kids to end up with them. Yeah, because that's also selfish and self-centered that revenge at any cost. For whatever reason, he wanted the Levines dead. And that's who he was trying to have killed. So 28-year-old Ferris was in prison for assaulting his girlfriend. And he was the subject of open investigations regarding attempted murder and aggravated robbery. So this guy is no peach himself. 
Harry befriended the younger man and eventually told him that he would pay his bond and then set him up with a nice life in Mexico if he would assassinate the Levines. Now, Nate told his mother about this plot, who immediately went and contacted Carolyn Levine. Wow. Yeah. She went mom to mom. And then Carolyn and Larry, of course, got in touch with law enforcement and the district attorney. And Nate was pulled out, obviously, and he agreed to wear a wire. So Perry was recorded soliciting the murder of his in-laws. It's all on tape. The plot was that Perry would pay to get Nate out of prison. Nate would get a gun. And then he would also get advice from the colonel, a.k.a. Arthur March, Perry's elderly father. And then he would be able to shoot Carolyn and Larry with the advice and info that Art provided. And after the murders, he would hop on a plane or a bus to Mexico, where when he got there, he would be taken care of and set up for life by Art. I always love it when people in jail say that they're going to set him up with the best life. Set him up for life. You're going to set me up? Look at your situation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, somebody's getting somebody set up. Let's just say that. Yeah. The authorities soon realized that they were going to get a March two for one because Art was clearly in the murder plot up to his eyeballs. (laughs) Once they had enough evidence to charge Perry with the murder for hire, they moved on to his dear old dad. Law enforcement removed Nate from the facility where he and Perry had been housed and led Perry to believe that Nate had bonded out. In reality, Nate had been taken to a secure room at the police station where he made a series of phone calls to Arthur March. Over the course of two weeks in October of 2005, the police recorded several conversations between the men. In these conversations, Arthur advised Nate on how to procure a gun, what the Levine's schedules were, and what time of day would be best to approach them. Oh, my God. Yep, he advised Nate to watch out for the Levine's son, Mark, while also using homophobic slurs to refer to him. Wow. He's also just a gross, terrible man. It's so clear at one point, because I was listening to this on Audible, and Gary King included all of the transcripts of these conversations. And at one point, he's trying to get him to get him a gun. He's like, well, how do I get a gun? And he's like, well, I can't do anything from down here because obviously he's in Mexico. And he's like, well, what do you think I should do? I mean, I can't just like go buy one because then they'll have my name on it. And he's like, oh, you just go to like the black section of the city and you just get one from them. And he's like, well, they'll know it's me. Like somebody will recognize me. And he's like, oh, it's just like everyday business for them. Like so racist. Gross. So he's like homophobic, he's racist, he's a murderer. It's just a real trifecta here. He also instructed Nate to wear surgical gloves any and every time he handled the firearm. And then he promised to deliver the good life when he arrived in Mexico, saying that he would pick him up at the Guadalajara bus station or airport. They even have like this whole conversation about like, what kind of dog do you have? Are you bringing your dog? Like, okay, that'll get along with my dog. It's like they're having this friendly chat about how they're going to live together happily ever after, after he murders two people. Jesus. On October 27th, 2005, Nate told Art that the deal was done. Art was skeptical, noting that he had not seen any news online that the Levines had been murdered. Nonetheless, he agreed to pick Nate up at the airport at the appointed time. Instead of Nate, Arthur was met by an FBI agent. Arthur was allowed to travel back to Ahahik, but arrested shortly thereafter and then extradited back to the old U.S. of A. to face solicitation of murder charges alongside his son. 
What a family reunion. What a family reunion. Arthur is an old man. He's 78 years old. And I don't mean that he's like elderly because 78 is old because my dad is just about to be 76 and he is far from elderly. But I think when you get into your 70s, like it can be a very wide range of health. Yes. And he both looked very unhealthy and was very unhealthy. So he looks even older than 78. And he looks frail. I mean, he walked with a cane. He was in poor health. However, he really had a high opinion of himself and his ability. I mean, I guess going back to his military days to fight, because when he found out that he was being arrested and that they wanted him to just surrender for the extradition process, he said, I don't go peacefully. I don't go like Perry. There'll be bloodshed somewhere, whether it's theirs or mine. I'm a big boy. I could take care of myself and I carry my cane. That's all I do. Carry your cane? Well, the cane apparently <laughs> was actually a sheath for a two foot long razor sharp blade. Oh my God, what a psychopath. Yeah. And first of all, even with that, he also had a belt that was like custom made to have a knife in it. Like if you took the buckle off a certain way, it was a knife. Even with these two weapons on his body, they very easily took him with zero bloodshed. <laughs> oh, gosh. Poor guy. I, 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 can't, un I can't unbuckle. <laughs> I'm like, sir, what are you doing? I Darn, buckle. Oh, my prostate. <laughs> I've fallen and I can't murder you with my cane sword. Do you think he got that, like, made at a knife convention? Well, apparently it was custom built. So, I, yeah, it was definitely something. Oh, Renaissance fair. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Get your ye old knife belt. <laughs> well, I know what I'm getting you for Christmas now. Oh, I can't believe I gave it away. <laughs> so, anyway, he must have lost steam. This passion that he demonstrated when he was getting arrested, was gone. After three weeks of sitting in prison and realizing that he was likely going to die there, shockingly, Arthur made a deal. He made wow. a deal. To flip on his son. To flip on his son. He was ready to commit solicitation for murder for him. But three weeks in prison, he says, nope, not for me. On February 6, 2006, Arthur agreed to plead guilty to solicitation to commit murder and receive only 18 months in federal prison. In exchange, he would testify against his own son and finally reveal the truth about what had happened to Janet. Arthur said that Perry told him that on the night that Janet had disappeared, they had gotten into a really bad argument. Now, another cellmate would come forward later and say that Perry also told him what happened and that the fight was about infidelity, money, and then her saying she wanted a divorce, which was pretty in line with what the detective theories had been about the case. Now, according to Arthur, Perry claimed that at one point, Janet had come at Perry with a kitchen knife and a physical fight had ensued. Perry had then beat her to death with a wrench inside their home. Oh, my God. Not what I imagined. No. That's horrifying. Yes. Perry then disposed of Janet's body, and he did end up calling his father to get him to come help him, including destroying the hard drive and getting it out of the house, obviously. But then he later found out after a few weeks that where he had buried Janet 
turned out to be a construction site. He didn't know that? Well, I guess it was they were just turning it into a construction site. So it was like they were breaking ground on a new place and he had no idea, which is really interesting because there were construction workers who called the police saying that they smelled something in the area that smelled like human decomposition. Yeah. So he's freaked out about it. So this is a few weeks later. I believe they were already in Chicago at this point. And he begs his dad to help him go get the body, dig it up, and put it somewhere else. However, at this point, there was no odor anymore because of the amount of decomposition. So Perry took his father out in the middle of the night. They retrieved the corpse, which was enclosed in a thick black garbage bag. He referred to it as a leaf bag. It's like those big ones that you would put a pile of leaves in after you rake. And they collected Janet. And then ultimately, they were going back towards Chicago and they stopped in Bowling Green where they got a hotel room. And Arthur dropped Perry off to get some rest. Well, Arthur by himself with just a flashlight went out to find a new place to stash Janet. And he was looking for a body of water. And I think that there was one indicated on this map that he had. So when he went there to put her in a stream, essentially, he realized that the stream had very little water, that it was very low. And so he could not place her there. So he found a large brush pile nearby and actually just buried her under the brush pile. And so he revealed to authorities where he put her and they took him back out to Bowling Green so that they could locate Janet's remains. But a decade just about had passed by now. And the highway that was near the highway he had pulled off of to do this had been widened by two lanes. So the area had changed and it had been disrupted by that construction as well. And they could not find anything. He also is an older guy and it was the middle of the night. And I don't know if he, I think he did try. I'm sure that it might've been a sweetening of the deal if he could have also located the remains, but they found his testimony credible enough, even without finding Janet's body. Yeah. Perry was a convicted felon before he even faced trial in the murder or the solicitation for murder. In April of 2006, Perry was found guilty of embezzling $23,000 from his father-in-law's law firm over a two-year period when he had worked there. Whoa. I mean, this guy is just winning all sorts of son-in-law of the year awards at this point. Wow. So at only two months after that, he was convicted on the murder for hire charge. And then I think an additional two months, which was almost 10 years after Janet had disappeared, his trial for her murder began. A videotape of Arthur's deposition was played. There was also the former cellmate of Perry's who testified that Perry had admitted the murder to him. Marissa Moody testified about the Oriental carpet. And a resident of the apartment complex where the Volvo had been found. He worked for the airport and had come home really late that night. And he thought it was very strange that he saw a man leaving the apartment complex at like one in the morning and he was riding a bike, but kind of like just standing next to it, walking next to it. And he identified that man as Perry March. So that's likely when he dumped the Volvo. Not only did the FBI forensic text discover Janet's hair in the back of the Volvo, they also discovered carpet fibers that had the same coloring as the carpet Marissa had described to them. Got it. Yep. So they could connect it. 
they could connect it because the carpet was missing and Marissa was like, I know I saw it. And Perry tried to say it had never existed. We never had an Oriental rug. It wasn't there. But why were those Oriental rug fibers in exactly the same color that Marissa saw of the carpet there? Yeah, maybe it wasn't there and you got it and put her in it yeah. and took it. Exactly. Perry's defense mostly sought to discredit the cellmate and his father and claim that Janet was still alive. They used an old TV interview of young Sammy claiming that he had watched his mother leaving the house. But the prosecution called rebuttal witnesses. Sam's kindergarten teacher, as well as the guardian ad litem, which, forgive me if that's how you pronounce it, recalled that Sammy had actually said that he heard his parents fighting and then he went to bed. And then when he woke up, his mother was just gone. Based on where his bedroom was, he at best would have seen a car leave but he would have never seen like his mother leaving. So that was just obviously been coerced to say that for the interview by Perry. After a week of trial and 10 hours of deliberation, the jury found Perry guilty on all charges. Great. Three weeks later, he was sentenced to the whole poo-poo platter of crimes. He got five years for the embezzlement and theft, which would run concurrently with 24 years for the murder for hire plot and then a consecutive so additional 32 year period for the murder of Janet March in total Perry received 56 years in jail he appealed over and over again I think he has now exhausted his appeals all were denied his earliest parole date is 2040 when he will be just about 80 years old I was hoping you'd say 100, but 80 is fine. Speaking of the elderly, despite being promised only an 18-month-long sentence, the sentencing judge ignored the plea agreement for Art March and sentenced him to five years in prison. Oh. Yeah, he said, sorry, I find you so deplorable that I'm giving you five years even though we made a deal for 18. However, Arthur only served four months of his sentence before he died in prison of respiratory failure on December 21st, 2006. Carolyn Levine said the following about Perry's conviction. I'm sorry and sad that our grandchildren have had to live 10 years without their mother and with the person who took her from them. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about my daughter. She had so many talents. She was a very caring, compassionate person. Every parent thinks their kid is special, but she really was. I'm happy to report that Sammy and Zipporah were placed with their loving grandparents. Yay. Now they're adults. I did a little creepy Googling, just a little bit, just not quite stalker level, but, you know, the first page of Google level. And it looks like they're both very happy, thriving, young individuals who are doing wonderful things with their lives. That makes me very happy. It was really, like, gratifying to see that they're getting degrees and launching careers and getting married and they appear very happy. So I hope, I hope that continues to be the case. And man, God bless the Levines and their epic fight for justice and not giving up even when Perry split and took the kids to Mexico. So this is week two of grandparents, like going the extra mile and making sure those kids are okay. So hopefully Ruth Markell and Phil Markell have the same outcome that the Levines had. I hope so, too. Absolutely. So thanks, guys. Again, I mean, I guess I think I did a couple grandparent-type cases for uh, Thanksgiving because hopefully you're with your grandparents and you give them a big old hug. In conclusion, man, just hug your grandparents. 
Thanksgiving. Give them a big old hug. Tell them thank you for being awesome. We also can be thankful for the majority of us not receiving those anonymous erotic letters. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. I am no thanks, Bill, for <laughs> erotic letters. So that is not what I will be grateful for around this year. Be grateful year's. for not having them. Able, exactly. <laughs> and as always, trust your gut when it comes to love and have an extra piece of pumpkin pie. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.